Dad, you were in Mumbai in World War II, weren't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, did you uh, swim in any rivers? And he said, the Ganga? It's the Ganga. Yeah. But yes. And now the saying in India is if you swim in the Ganga as a man, the divine beings that are waiting to take birth again, the humans that are waiting to take birth again, come into your semen through the river and you carry them and then pass them into a womb so they can take birth again. All right. So he swam in the river. Then I said, did you go to any temples? He said, yeah. I said, did they give you any food to eat? Now, if you go to a Hindu temple, they've offered food to the deities. And he said, yeah, prasad or something like that. And the word is prasad. Yeah. It means food that's been offered to the divine. Uh-huh. And when the priest would give it to a 19-year-old good-looking American Air Force captain visiting his temple unexpectedly, he would say, may you have a son devoted to Vishnu. <laughs> and lo and behold, here he is. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is best-selling author, Vedic scholar, linguist, and poet, Jeffrey Armstrong. Today's episode is focused on an important topic for us all, how to be a spiritual warrior. This subject is very dear to Paul's heart, and he's been looking for someone with adequate spiritual depth and life experience to explore this topic with for quite some time. As fortune would have it, Laurel Erica, Paul's guest on episode 152, suggested that Paul read The Bhagavad Gita Comes Alive by Jeffrey Armstrong. The Bhagavad Gita is the most widely read of all Hindu scriptures, and Paul has read many translations of this text. He was very impressed with Jeffrey Armstrong's translation and managed to connect with Jeffrey, who was kind enough to join Paul for the episode you are about to listen to. This is now one of Paul's all-time favorite episodes. Today, you are blessed to be in the presence of a true wise man who, at 76 years of age, is an absolute wealth of knowledge. As Paul says, a very deep well. Not only is Jeffrey highly skilled in the Sanskrit language, he's a Vedic scholar, poet, comedian, TV personality, and much more. Throughout this episode, Jeffrey recites Hindu sacred scripture in Sanskrit, and you will get to experience what happens within Paul as he empties himself to be fully present with the words, even though Paul himself does not speak the language. You may find this an inspiration to keep up with your own spiritual practices. Jeffrey talks about his life path and the formative forces that led him to be the man he is today. He describes his experience with Apple Computer in the early days and how he became Saint Silicone, a high-paid comedian who spent years using comedy to educate people about the real dangers of computer technology. What Jeffrey shares from personal experience is very relevant to the issues of today and it is exactly what he warned about a very long time ago. Paul asks Jeffrey why he chose to devote so much time to the study of Sanskrit, and Jeffrey explains why Sanskrit is such a powerful language and tells us some very interesting history on the emergence of other languages from Sanskrit. They discuss the real meaning of the story told in the Bhagavad Gita and how this timeless scripture carries some very important messages and deep spiritual guidance that is more relevant today than ever before. Jeffrey and Paul dialogue about what is really important in life and how being conscious of the world from a spiritual perspective is essential to keep ourselves grounded. How we can be positive influences and beneficial agents of change and not get pulled into polarization that easily leads to violence. 
Enjoy Paul's conversation with Jeffrey Armstrong, a living embodiment of the kind of wisdom that we all need much more of in our lives today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, our title is a very exciting title and very relevant to the issues of today, being a spiritual warrior. Our guest today is someone I've wanted to have on this podcast for a long time, and we've made it happen. Our last one was just fraught with technical difficulties, so we finally got tired and said, let's try again, but here we are. Jeffrey Armstrong is well-versed in the Sanskrit language and authored an excellent translation of the most widely read Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, which I have studied. I have right in my hands. For those of you watching on video, it is one badass piece of work right here, and it's very beautiful. The whole book is beautifully laid out. So, uh, Jeffrey, thank you for that. And I just wanted to say uh, for the rest of you listening, Jeffrey is a very well-rounded man with an ex- with extensive experience in the Vedic sciences and a very diverse background. He's the author of the, uh, the Vedic Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is abbreviated V-A-S-S-A. He has a TV show created in the United Kingdom that goes to India on C-I-T-T-I TV on YouTube. It's uh, Vedic Vidya by Jeffrey Armstrong. He's a Vedic astrologer. He is foremost a truth seeker and a poet, which I'm sure he'll give you some samples of. He has worked for Apple Computer and will share some deep insights he gained from the experience that are relevant to the issues we're all facing today. I'm very excited to have Jeffrey Armstrong on the show with us all today. You're about to experience that Jeffrey is a deep well of wisdom and has an amazing sense of humor. So, Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you very much, Paul. Your kind words are deeply felt, and namaste, as we say in the yoga culture. I honor the divine in you. I see you as an immortal being on an amazing long journey across across infinite time. I think... These days, we all need to be reminded that our immortality is the greater truth relative to our perceived mortality. Yes, you should say, excuse me, but your immortality is showing. Yes, your immortality is showing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, You know, Jeffrey, uh, I'd love it if you could share your developmental history so we can get a feel for where you're coming from, uh, you know, your philosophy and, and just sort of a sense of as we dive into some of the deeper issues that we're going to get into, I think it's helpful for people to get a sense of what are the formative forces that create a man like you, because you're, uh, I've interviewed a lot of people and I've been around a lot of people and studied a lot of people. And you're one interesting cat, as I would say. So I'd love to, you know, I I got to talk to you and you and I've had some dialogue together, but for the audience, I'd, I'd love if you could share some of the story that really turned you into the guy that's here coaching us today on how to live life. <laughs> well, <laughs> never, never, never ask someone over 70 to still tell the stories of their life. Yeah. <laughs> They'll go on forever. I'll start out by saying that I was born in Detroit, Michigan. When it was the murder capital of North America. <laughs> Very Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. And then moved out to an all-white suburb, which was an amazingly correct juxtaposition. And my 
birth mother was full-blooded gypsy. My father, Scottish, from a clan called Arm Strong. Very cool. The family motto. That's great. Invictus Maneo, I shall not be overcome by the force of arms. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. And the, my, my ancestor who received that name went into full battle riding on the back of a horse uh, with his prince. The prince was unseated by the British enemy. This was at the border of Scotland and England, of course, where they always fought. And uh, the British were always looking to colonize someone. And the prince was knocked off his horse. And Fairbairn came riding up at a full gallop, also in armor, and picked up the prince, put him on the back of his horse at a full gallop, and saved his life. After which the clan Armstrong arose and he was knighted from Fair Bairn to Arm Strong. Wow, that's quite a quite a bloodline you got there. My grandfather was a decorated war hero in World War One, and he was a cavalry sergeant wow. in charge of the horses. I was raised on horseback from age zero and rode horses all my life until I was fully grown up. And he uh, then gave birth to my father, his eldest son who was a decorated war hero from World War II, a pilot at age 19 stationed in Mumbai, India. Wow. Where he picked up a hitchhiker. <laughs> your wife, your mother. <laughs> Me. Oh. <laughs> There's a saying in India that. So when I went into the ashram at age 23, I spent five years as a monk in an ashram, in a series of ashrams. and. I called my father on the phone. He wasn't very excited about me becoming a Hindu, but I called him <laughs> on the phone and said, Dad, you were in Mumbai in World War II, weren't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, did you uh, swim in any rivers? And he said, the Ganga? It's the Ganga. Yeah. But yes. And now the saying in India is if you swim in the Ganga as a man, the Divine beings that are waiting to take birth again, the humans that are waiting to take birth again, come into your semen through the river and you carry them and then pass them into a womb so they can take birth again. All right. So he swam in the river. Then I said, did you go to any temples? He said, yeah. I said, did they give you any food to eat? Now, if you go to a Hindu temple, they've offered food to the deities. And he said, yeah, prasad or something like that. And the word is prasad. Yeah. It means food that's been offered to the divine. Uh -huh. And when the priest would give it to a 19-year-old good-looking American Air Force captain visiting his temple unexpectedly, he would say, may you have a son devoted to Vishnu. <laughs> and lo and behold, here he is. Here he is. Folks. That's such a badass story. I love it, man. Right out of the suburbs of Detroit. Have you ever heard of the, the musician, singer, Sato Rodriguez from Detroit? Vaguely. Re oh, man. I'll uh, have to email you a link to some of his music. Mind-blowing story. Uh -huh. uh, any of you that are listening, um, there's a documentary on his life that's just so powerful and heart-touching. The music is killer, and his poetry is out of this world. It's called Searching for Sugar Man, and it's on Amazon. It'll blow you away. But yeah, it's all centered around Detroit. So I, 
and 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 I was wondering if you knew him because he was real famous in the seventies. No, that's why I say it's a vague memory. But I did, of course, get involved in this, the rap culture and the whole thing that was going on. Mm -hmm. And so from that, uh, several things happened. And one is I started being a poet at age thirteen. Yeah, I remember you telling me that's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, it, it didn't. I would. I didn't try, and I didn't have. I wasn't surrounded by any to speak of at that time. Certainly not in my family, who didn't read books much. They just middle class went to work, watched TV, and so I went to the carnival one night. I was about thirteen. Went by myself. One of those typical Midwest carnies. Yeah. All the usual suspects in the roller coaster and the merry-go-round. You eat cotton candy, you popcorn, get sick, throw up, go home. <laughs> Wait, come back next year. <laughs> Did a sledgehammer and beat on an old car. You know, this was the, what these carnivals were like. So I did that, came back home, and for the first time, I, I lived in the basement of the home we were in. I just picked up a piece of paper and a pen. And I don't remember any other poetry I wrote at that age, but this is the first poem that came out of me at age 13. Life is like a carnival filled with dirty little men offering grubbing for pennies and offering cheap thrills to stupid people who lead empty, meaningless lives. And when I look in the mirror, I see not one person, but two. And I wonder which one is really me. <laughs> that's pretty deep. For a that's pretty deep for anybody. <laughs> 13 was a notable year. At yeah. 13, at the dinner table with my four siblings and two parents, I looked at them and I said, you know, folks, I've been thinking about it. And I want to thank you so much for everything you've done so far. But from now on, I'll make all my own decisions. Very good. Did and you? they just kind of looked at me. I did. And they just looked at me like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Our little man has arrived. Where did he come? Yeah. So and this is the story. All of us are coming from another life. So to keep this on track with the philosophy, all of us are immortal beings. And if I can say this without being disrespectful to anyone, the one lifetime religions and one lifetime scientists are all missing one important thing. And that is that life is absurd if it's only one lifetime. It is. The existentialist philosopher saw this very clearly. Sartre's a little wonderful play, No Exit. You may remember it, but three people are trapped in a room that they don't remember going to with furniture they don't like. And one is a lesbian woman and a gay man and a heterosexual somebody else. And the butler only comes when you don't call him. And you can't hurt yourself. There's nothing there to kill yourself with. This was Jean-Paul Sutra's post-World War II vision of existential hell. Yeah. Sounds pretty... It's like the summers. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it sounds pretty much like most people's lives. Yeah, that's it. that was his idea. Yeah. So the you're probably familiar with the two great epics of India, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Yeah. Now, these are the largest pieces of literature in existence in terms of any ancient text or modern text. The Mahabharata is 100,000 Sanskrit verses. The Ramayana is 24,000 Sanskrit verses. And here's what most people don't know. Those two texts contain over 200 astronomical references to what the sky was like exactly when they were being spoken. And this dates the Ramayana at 12,000 years ago, 
and the Mahabharata at 8,000. Irrevocably. No, 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 no deny. Right. So this is the debate that hasn't been truly understood. And a friend of mine named Nilesho recently wrote a book, several books about this, showing exactly the math, the astronomy, the whole thing. So it's inconvertibly proven, and it's the only ancient text that goes back that far. So what's clear is that in our repeated journeys of coming back, we pick up the thread and go, we have a where was I moment. I know you must have had one. What was your where was I moment? I've had lots of them, but you know what what has happened to me many times in my lifetime Probably one of the best examples is I'll be doing healing work on a patient. And I start them with prayers and and I invite healing beings or angels or beings of light to come support me. But I'll be doing these healings and somehow I will know things to do, whether it be rattles, drums, crystals, tobacco any number of tools, but all of a sudden I'm, I'm doing this and then I'm thinking, how do I know how to do this? And I've had many, many experiences in my life where I found myself in deja vu experiences. Like I've been here before, I've done this before. And then having done a couple of professionally guided past life regressions, I've been able to find out, well, why is that? For example, I've been a doctor in several lifetimes, which would have been in the traditional form of a doctor then. Uh, one I distinctly remember was in the Middle East. I was traveling uh, home to home on a camel to help people, and I had all sorts of herbs and oils and things like that. So those are just a, without railroading the whole discussion, that's an example of, of the kinds of experiences I've had in that regard. So there's two kinds of waking up. Uh, and one kind sort of goes like a dilettante from indigenous culture to indigenous culture, finding themselves in the company of like-minded beings mm-hmm. and finding techniques. And so there's basically two ways you can go into the yogic state. You can deja vu your way straight in because you already have a library card yeah. from a previous life. And so you just kind of wake up and go, well, this is how I started being an astrologer at 19. I'm in university now. I'd go to a party, grab someone by the hand and say, your father did this, your mother did this, your uncle did this, your grandmother did this. And they pull their hand away like, go, be gone, evil one. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we, we who come back, having done that freshly in a previous life, are looking, almost kind of going, where was I? Where was I? Now, this is no disrespect to those who don't do that yet. Because the university, I call the universe the university. Yes. This is what reincarnation is all about. Yeah. So we should see all living entities with respect. They mm-hmm. aren't their body. They aren't their skin. They aren't where they were born. They're mortal beings on a wonderful, amazing journey. They're brave. They're individual. And they are on this long journey from some incredible realm, which we're going to turn around and inquire about eventually. And that's yoga. Mm-hmm. Yoga is simply getting to this point consciously in the presence of a culture that did this profession. I want to ask you a quick question if I could if I could without disrupting the story that of oh, yeah. your of your beginnings and your unfolding. 
The questions are better than the story. Go ahead. No way, man. Your stories are great. Uh, this is what I've experienced. Um, you know, when I look at the issues of the world and things we're going to talk about today and all the people I've worked with, and I have something along the lines of 25,000 students worldwide. So I've interacted, you know, I've, I like you, I've been at this a long time, 37 years. Right. So what I have felt over and over again is that the world is really a schoolyard for fairly immature souls and that there are teachers that come, um, you know, I know I've been here multiple times for that reason, and I've yes. ran into many of my students that I immediately recognize from past lives. And so I'm just wanting to share what your opinion is on the earth as a place for, for, for souls that are fairly uh, still in the beginning stages of their evolution. Well, you know, Paul, where, where being a poet led me was becoming a linguist eventually. So let me give you a Sanskrit word and show you how neat this Sanskrit language really is. So. The term for what you were just touching upon is when we meet someone, we want to find out how to be of service to them, not to impose ourselves. Right. If we're paying attention. Yeah. So it, we we know not to bully or force or coerce. Mm -hmm. So all of these coercive cultures, so-called coercive religions, no religion is coercive. They've just used the name of their religion, but. That real Islam is not coercive. Real Christianity is not coercive. Jesus was not coercive. But bad actors acting in the name of those things give them a bad name. Yeah. But with, with the Vedic culture, the Sanskrit language keeps us consistent in what we talk about. Mm -hmm. So the word for where we are in the curriculum of reincarnation is Adhikari. Adhikari, meaning what? Meaning the level in school. Ah. Meaning your what experiences you've had and digested, therefore telling me what you're ready for next. So that's what we should talk about, not what I want to talk about. If I'm in university and you're in sixth grade, we should talk about sixth grade. Yes. Or seventh grade. So the adhikari became Greek, edukari, ah. which means to bring forth from within. Yes. And the English education, which means to pile a bunch of shit on top. Right. And doctor in Latin means teacher. Exactly. And doctor is Sanskrit, duk tara. Mm. Duk is distress, and tara is the relief of that distress. Very cool. So a doctor relieves your distress by what? Aligning you again with nature. So that you're no longer getting that screaming pain signal that says you're out of alignment with nature. Mm -hmm, which uh, so, a, con a concept that's uh, terribly uh, forgotten by the most medical associations. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And this is why all psychic practitioners tune in first, connect with the person, pull it in, download, see them, decide where they're at, then upload. I'd say, okay, now download that, please. They just don't necessarily have names for all the players and all the, what they're doing. Yes. They did it in a previous life, so they do it automatically now. All of those are some kind of yogi, because yoga just means to link. Mm -hmm. It means having the uplink. Mm -hmm. To link and, back. Yeah, to link up and back and out and yeah. within, but to link to the resources that are otherwise invisible, but visible to those who can see them. 
Right. Right. So all of us on that journey who've done this before know we did before because nothing here really interests us. Yeah. So back to my story, I became a white-skinned rap poet while I was in Detroit, and I call it Caucasian rap or crap. <laughs> you always crack me up, man. And when somebody laughs, I say, no, you shouldn't laugh. It's some good shit. Here, let me give you an example. All right. I said, you heard of Adam. He discovered the Adam as he tried to relieve a lady named Eve with a weakness for snakes and a couple bad breaks. So they cut down the trees and bought color TVs. Polluted <laughs> the skies, built a new paradise with a crane. They were able and a wrinkle free label. Hoping not to die, bought insurance from a guy with a crew cut and a grin who smells of original sin. <laughs> and the accidental babies raised on formula and babies read the Bible science fiction. So the moonshot resurrection, but could see what they were getting was a brand X Armageddon with a nuclear conclusion to the fission in the fusion. And they thought the prophets meant the money should be spent and forgot the words of Moses who felt bad and sent roses to the funeral of a race in the depths of outer space on a planet that will glisten with the proof it wouldn't listen till the flood will come again and another group of men try to live but not to harden in the cosmic kindergarten <laughs> too good I gotta hook you up with a musician friend of mine so he can put music to that we got to share that with the world man that's too good i've got that's just a, hundreds of those that's a story of life all by itself man well so let's do one more like that and you'll enjoy the two together i am originally of course from detroit so it was inevitable wasn't it that i would write the ultimate car poem yeah let's hear it it's called cartel yeah, how appropriate. We bought something fast and new, but now we can't afford it. Advertisers ply mouths while shoving us around. Olds, something now obsolete. Jesus Chrysler was resurrected and Lincoln was <laughs> shot in spite of General Motors by a crazy cad. He couldn't dodge. So his mercury fell with a valiant struggle before Dot's son had even risen. Thank God he didn't see the freed slaves. This side of the Hudson, Hudson in Pittsburgh and Detroit, everyone needs a good BMW, but don't get bugged. It's only progress, a live or diesel rolling on its ass fault, no fault, $200 sin insurance in policy. But life is a gas. And why do you think they call it carbon monoxide? <laughs> we automobilize, but you won't give up your pet rolls and pick up on the convertible energy. Oh, well, we can't push you to change your standard and see the whole cycle. Just thought I'd warn you about the old shell game, but you must be tired now. So Mercedes will coop for listening. But anyway, You'll walk a mile for a camel, very chic. Must be your car, ma. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a triumph of the English language. <laughs> yes, well, it's interesting how your poems uh, tell quite a story about the issues of the day, I must say. Just an accident. I mean, an automobile. 
Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've heard me talk about Dr. Quiet many times, if you're listening to the podcast at all. And you've probably also heard me say that there's nothing more restorative than sleep. It is our most powerful anabolic agent, tissue restorative, mind restorative, and it's free. There's lots of reasons why some people can't get to sleep at night, such as electromagnetic pollution from routers, phones, and most any electrical device, or even power lines that are near your home. Consuming too much carbohydrate relative to fat and protein for your unique needs before bedtime also causes sleep disturbance. The consumption of stimulants in foods or drinks, such as coffee and tea, will stop you from sleeping well. The consumption of alcohol, which rapidly causes hyperglycemia, followed by hypoglycemia, and then elevates cortisol levels and inhibits melatonin, is another major blocker from restorative sleep. But one common reason is a lack of magnesium, the right kind of magnesium in the right amount. If you are magnesium deficient, then there's no better supplement than Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It contains all seven essential forms of magnesium and no synthetic additives or preservatives. For the entire month of November, Bioptimizers are having a Black Friday, Cyber Monday blowout sale on their best-selling Magnesium Breakthrough. Get up to 25% off every order and get access to over $200 in free gifts, including books and more of their best products to sample. You can only get this exclusive deal through my link, so if you're ready to feel better, sleep better, and get your mind back to work for you instead of against you, go to magnesiumbreakthrough.com forward slash living4d. That's living, L-I-V-I-N-G, number four, little d. And on checkout, use the code living, number four, little d, to get your discount and your free gifts today. I use Bioptimizer's products because they've worked for me and everyone I know and everyone that uses them tells me they love them and I'm very confident they will work for you. Enjoy Magnesium Breakthrough and sleeping better. I'd love to to hear how you got into the study of the Sanskrit language and and why that was important to you and and what led you to read translating the Bhagavad Gita, you know, I, I know it's a very celebrated text. It's the most widely read of the Hindu scriptures, but I'm curious as to what you were, why were you drawn to that text and why did you want to retranslate it? You know, as soon as you start to play with words, Paul, that, that's a really great question. Then eventually, I mean, you do have to become a dictionary lover. You can't help. Yes, I am one. I've got about 30 of them. That's it. And because this is where you go to feed yourself, you might say. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but it's how you get the jewels that were passed forward from every culture. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the trick here is the difference between a usage dictionary, which is kind of like for those who don't haven't wakened up to language yet, just so that they can get by on a daily basis and do whatever they have to do. So they have to know the definitions of words. Actually, the first English dictionary didn't happen until after uh, until about uh, fourteen hundred. Yeah, that's when the first dictionaries were coming out, and then the printing press came out, and then English started to become literate. Before that, it was a really unbalanced, awkward tongue. Right. So, if you study language at all, you're thrown back to Latin. 
but most people don't know what makes Latin different than Spanish. In Spanish, have you studied Espanol? No, not very much. (laughs) My only two words of of Spanish, uh, you know, because I used to work with a lot of um, Mexican and Spanish people uh, in my physical therapy clinic and my rehab clinic, but I couldn't speak their language. So I really had two words, um, (laughs) grande dolor or pequito dolor. So (laughs) that way I knew if I was making them better or worse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's good. Yeah. So, cuando caliente el sol, la que la playa, siento tu cuerpo vibrar cerca de mí. Anyway, I studied Spanish a little bit. Yeah. In the Romance languages, in order to make a sentence, you take the verb from its infinitive root, to be, to go, to have. And in Spanish, to have is haber. Mm-hmm. Sorry, is, is tengo, tener. So if I say I have something, then I add the personal pronoun and a case ending. Yo, tengo. Tu, tienes. That's you have. Nosotros, tenemos. They have, we have. So then in Latin, you do that same thing with the noun and the verb. Complicated. This makes Latin Latin more precise Uh in terms of meaning. Because now when you write a sentence, you conjugate the noun and the verb, and their case endings have to agree, showing that the sentence is now more precise. Mm-hmm. So in Sanskrit, you do the same thing with the noun, the verb, the adjective, and the adverb. That seems like a lot of, uh, uh, like you have to think about a lot to, to, to be able to do that. You have to be precise in everything you say. Yeah. So when I found this out, it's like first becoming a scientist. For a scientist, this isn't the forearm. It's the extensor digitorium profundus. That's one of them, yeah. (laughs) That's the Latin for what this is. Uh This muscle is the extensor digitorium profundus. Your your extensors are on the other side. (laughs) There you go. I, I know my anatomy very well. <laughs> That's great. And so what you just did was said, well, almost, but right there, actually. Yes. But that's the whole point of the story. Yeah. And so in Sanskrit, instead of just going sort of over there, I'll give you a good example. What is the literal meaning of the word spiritual? Not your idea. The literal meaning. I wouldn't know. Uh, there's Nobody so many. Knows. Yeah, there's so many disagreements and and it's a very i've researched it a lot but the the one meaning that i have gravitated toward because it feels right in my heart is spirituality is the progressive expansion of your sphere of connection and awareness sure but nobody that you talk to would know that's what you mean when you say the word spiritual no that's why i always get words clear before i use them with people so the word spiritual is spiritus and it means to breathe Yes, yes. So when someone says to me they're spiritual, I say, I'm glad you're breathing, but I still don't know what you mean. Yes, yes. I I understand spiritus is breathing. Spiritus, pneuma, soul, they're all linked. So let's follow this track and have fun. So what is the word God? Well, if I really want to give you the true meaning, I can't say a word. You could do that. Or I could say, no, I'm asking you where the word comes from. 
where does it come from? That's called etymology. Yeah, um, I don't know, but I've read a couple of books, like The History of God by Karen Armstrong, and I have a few other books in my library I've studied, but it's still, nobody really agrees on that one either. And so the word God came into English from Dutch, gut, G-U-T, from German, gutam, G-H-U-T-A-M. And in the Bhagavad Gita, that word is used four times as hutam, H-U-T-A-M. Hutam is the smoke that arises from a sacred fire when you place an offering of gratitude into it. Mm. So the Agnihotra Yagya, as it's called, is not declaring who the Supreme Being is. It's thanking the divine helpers for giving us our food, and it's committing ourselves to ecology so that we will reciprocate by restoring nature. What a concept. It's sourly, sorely missing from our whole world culture at this point, except maybe the Indians that understand Sanskrit. Exactly. But when you place the offering in the fire, and the fire starts to eat it, and that fire is called Agni. So the yes. Agni is eating it now. Mm -hmm. And the smoke is arising. The smoke is called Hutam. Mm. And Agni is, if I'm right, uh, Agni is the name, spiritual name for all fire. It's the spirit of the fire, Agni, whether it be the sun or the campfire or the cooking so fire. Here's how you would say it in Sanskrit. There are devas and devis. Right. And div means light. Mm -hmm. So D, Deepa is a lamp. Deepavali, mm -hmm. P, divine. The divine in English means the D is Sanskrit light. Mm, I love so it. Deva and Devi are the masculine and feminine helpers in nature who embody the laws of nature. Beautiful. The one who is embodied as fire is called Agni. Here's a bag of Agni. And God, by the way. That's a bag of Hutan, actually. Yes, yes. Agni was who, who made it possible. Agni made it possible. Now you're getting it. So where is Agni from? Surya. Surya is another name for the sun. And it gives us the English word Sir, S-I-R. Ah. So what no one in our culture understands. And, but we didn't finish the irony on God. So this means that Christianity, who hate fire sacrifices and hate so-called idols, we'll get to idol in a minute, who hate all of that violently even throughout their history. And again, not all of the sincere Christians, but the violent ones. The library, I call them the library burning Muslims and Christians. Yes. If you're a Christian or Muslim, raise your hand if you would burn a library. Okay, I didn't think so. There's only a few, and the ones that would are not Christians and they're not Muslims. They're despicable individuals posing as religionists. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's, let's be clear, the religions don't do stuff like that. No. But people do in the name of religion. Yes, when it's uh, profitable to their own motives. When it suits them. Yep. Religion is like a... a it's like a trump card in a card deck, you know, or like the wild card. You pull the wild card whenever you want to kill somebody else in the name of God so you can get away with your own devious intentions. I call it Walmart, Costco, and Target. Yeah. 
There are three buying groups, they're corporations, and they have an agenda. If they have an agenda aside from enlightening and bringing everyone to their perfection yes. in a loving way, then that's not religion. But now no. back to Bhutan. Yeah. So Christianity has taken a two-bit Sanskrit word, which just describes the smoke arising from an offering to the divines, to the devas and devis, mm-hmm. and made it into the ultimate supreme being. Right. But the name of the ultimate supreme being in Sanskrit is Bhagavan. And yes. that's what you get Bhagavad Gita from. Yes, and that and Osho's original name was Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh. Well, but he unfortunately did not teach the meaning of Bhagavan because he had an agenda also. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. It, it didn't work hip- out in the end, though. No, putting a bunch of naked hippies in a room isn't exactly yoga. Uh, <laughs> it's it's called an orgy here. <laughs> I think so. I think so. So the hutam word becoming gutam, gut, and god, the irony is completely lost upon people who speak English. They look at me like a deer in the headlights and go, so? Well, so, don't you get the joke? No, I'm so far from linguistics, I don't even get the joke. Yeah. Oh, well, let's do another. Hi. Let's do one more point. Sure. So when I was a young, growing Protestant, you know, eight years old, 10 years old in church, the minister would give a sermon, a reasonable guy, Reverend Crumb. I always thought that was funny. Yeah. Uh, because the things we hated, that, never mind. So anyway, so, and he would say, we now turn to hymn number 235, onward Christian soldiers marching as if to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before, paradoxically, it's one of the most common examples. That's the one of the most common examples I give of of the absolute chaos, confusion, paradox in the Bible that everybody should have stood up right away and started asking very deep questions, which in most Christian churches gets you shunned because they're not linguists. First of all, I started asking that at eight. That's it. You and I together. We were the ones in the class causing trouble. So now, what does the word H-Y-M-N, him, actually mean? Uh, I would imagine something to sing. You would think so, but it actually is more like it's spelled. It means hymen. Hymen? Yeah. The virginity, the patch of skin on the woman. Yes. When she's a virgin. Yeah. And the word him was called the wedding him of the woman. And it was the scream she made when she was penetrated by her husband on her wedding. Ah. From Hyman. Yeah, wow. That's so a- you see, Paul, listen, punchline, it really is all about him. <laughs> the eternal virgin. That's right. Now the ironies land. So guess what? When the Sanskrit shlokas of the Veda in Sanskrit are translated into English, they're called the Vedic hymns. Mm. Completely wrong translation. Right. So when the Bhagavad Gita is translated into English, the word Bhagavan is taken out and the word God is put in. Mm. So here's one more. Yeah. What does Lord mean? Well, typically ruler or the highest. You would think. And this is why the British invented the caste system. The word casta is Portuguese. But the caste system they perfected because 
the Lord word is English, of course, and it's from the Old English, haflard and haflain. The spelling is quite strange. It's not H-A-L-F exactly, but it's like H-A-L-F. And the word laugh became loaf. So it's loaf lady and loaf lord. The loaf lady baked the bread. And the loaf lord distributed the bread to who? The slaves who were working the land in England. Yeah. So these are the lords and ladies. Haflard, Haflady. And then what is the famous prayer in Christianity? Paternoster. Give us this day our daily bread. bread. What? How did Rome keep from revolution when they kept it away? They gave free bread to all the slaves in the, in the culture, to all the bottom end of the culture. So Lord and landlord and the one who doesn't earn their bread is a loafer. Mm, very cool. It's amazing how it's all there if you know where to look, isn't it? That's it. And this is what I've been doing. This is the work I've been doing because right now our politics, everything that we're doing in the world is lost in a chaos and confusion of words in English, especially. And we can't sort that chaos out until we sort out the confusion over words. And Sanskrit is the grandmother language of Greek, Latin, Aramaic, Russian. Russian is from the word Rishi. Scandinavia is from the word Skanda, which is the, the son of Shiva and Durga and, and the devas of India. And Ireland is Aryan, Aryaland. And mm. so Sanskrit spread all down the Silk Road, all across Europe. 50% of Russian is Sanskrit, of the Scandinavian languages, large percentages of Latin and of uh, Greek. And yet still to this day, no one even recognizes this academically. Why? Because the academic universities, especially the Oxfords and Cambridges, were the instruments of colonizing the world. Right. Now, if I remember right, doesn't Sanskrit have a lot more symbols, which would be the equivalent of, we have 26 letters in our alphabet. Doesn't it have something like 50 or more? It has 50. Yeah. And this is where I was headed with you. So there are four sciences of language in Sanskrit. One is the grammatical rules of the language, which is called Vyakarana. And there are 4,000 grammatical rules to the Sanskrit language. Which is I had a wild. professor who had memorized all 4,000. You'd say something in Sanskrit, he'd say rule number 2,221. If this, then this, and that. Right. So that's one. So grammar. Think of that as the grammar. The second part is the etymology. There are 2,212 roots to Sanskrit words. And the meaning always goes back to its root. Mm-hmm. So what does the word karma mean? Well, you know, the standard interpretation of it is action, reaction. Good. Perfect. Action and reaction. Now, what is the root of the word karma? This is the etymology. This is the, yeah, root, I, I wouldn't, the root word. I wouldn't know. No, because it's you have to know Sanskrit. It's Cree, K-R-I. Which means? Ah, so now, ri is the root of the dri, or the kri. The kri root, ri, r-i, 
which is a dotted R in Sanskrit, a special character, means the rhythm. And the rhythm is all of the laws of nature. Oh, how beautiful. So Sanskrit is really the verbal expression of the laws of nature. Correct. Exactly. And better. You got it. So some tongue. But it's also pieces of Briha or Brahman. It is chunks of immortality landing as the letters of the alphabet. Mm-hmm. And, and just before I lose you, how does that te- what does that tell us about karma? So the rhythm gives us ri, R-I. In fact, I just happen to have a little poster here. Oh, neat. Very cool. These are English words based on the Sanskrit ri. Love it. I see truth right in the middle. I like that. Rhythm. Ritual. Yeah. Trial. Architecture. Quite a lot. Quite a lot. Art, and that's art. just some of them. Some of my favorite words are there. Yeah. Merit. Treasure. Regent. Wait. Uh, reading. Writing. Uh, arithmetic. Ah. Written. Ritual. All yes. the read. Mm-hmm. So they're just theme and variation words on the laws of nature. The rhythm. So the re joined with D, the letter D, and became dree. In Old English, that became tree, mispronounced D. And the tree stands for something. So the tree is standing there, standing for itself. Yes. Its particular fruit, its particular essence in nature. So the dree of Sanskrit went to England and became the tree in English, and that became truth, troth, truth, and trust. So dree and tree and re of karma. Karma is the action of those laws. Dharma is adhering to those laws. Ah, I see. So when someone says bad karma, what they're really saying, usually without knowing it, is that you're out of harmony with the laws of nature and you're likely to have an experience that reflects that. And that experience is called duke. Uh-huh. We call it put up your dukes. But in Sanskrit, it means pain and distress from violating the laws of nature. And if you don't violate the laws of nature, you'll get souk. And souk is where the word sugar comes from. You'll Uh, get a little more sugar if you work with the laws of nature and a little more pain and suffering if you go against them, put up your dukes. Okay. Now, while we act in life, there is no punishment and reward. There's just cause and effect. Right. So we backlog a whole series of cause and effect. And this becomes a problem because now that's following us. In other words, cause and effect doesn't punish us. It follows us. Right. And each life we come in with a certain amount of it trailing along behind us. Uh Uh-huh. I see. So this then leads us to our next poem. Wait, wait one second. 
before you give us the poem, there's a word in Buddhism. I believe I'm quite sure. Yeah, it's Buddhism because I've, I've looked it up in Buddhist dictionaries called dukkha, which means necessary imbalance. So does that, you think, relate to duke? Directly from duke. Dukkha is the Sanskrit word. Ah, okay. Yes, because. Sukha uh, and duke. Yes. Fred Allen Wolf uses the word to describe that because if we didn't have dukkha or necessary imbalance, nothing would rotate, nothing would move because the perfection of God is unmoving the way wu way of the Taoist action without action. But dukkha brings in the imbalance that causes time to emerge. But you don't really mean the way of smoke. You really mean the way of Bhagavan. Uh, well, I, I, I have to get you to discern that. <laughs> I was just teasing so people could see that it takes a little a while. Because it's not that you don't have good intentions, it's that you just never got these words. Right. So you asked me at the beginning of this section how I got to Sanskrit. Yes. And just like you are, by talking to somebody who knew what I knew linguistically, not experientially, not smarter than me, but a carrier for a more precise programming language. So now let's say that you and I and everyone around us are programmers programming our life with our language yes would it be useful to get a more precise programming language well would that be like asking would you like a gps for your phone that's shitty or one that's accurate that's right do you like static all the time and most of the time or would you like a clear video yeah exactly yeah. so that's what sanskrit was to me i i started just seeing and number two and this is the big secret okay now the first secret is the words all came from somewhere, yes. like everything else. It obviously came from something very intelligent. Yes. Something or someone. Does it be fair to everyone? So then, in that case, that download, what if we could just go online? What if, I mean, isn't this show right now a series of vibrations traveling across space? That's exactly what it is. And time? That's what everything is. Oh, how interesting. Well, then, what if I said, Om Bhavasva Tatsavitur Vareniyam Bargo Devasya Dimahi Dio Yona Prachodaya? Your natural question would be, what did you just say? I'll tell you what happened to me when you said that. Two things. I saw a river flowing and the sun rising inside of me. So now I want to know what you said. <laughs> I, I invoked the presence of the sun. Huh? Wow. I said, Ombua Bhuvasva, above where I am, where I am and below where I am. That light of the sun is shining everywhere. Bargo de Basya de Mahi. I, in my intrinsic essential nature, am just like that sun. Wow. I adore that sun so I may shine brighter just like it does. Wow. How cool is that? Isn't that? See, you were, you were giving me images of, of what you were saying, you know, and I get that a lot when I listen to music in foreign languages. 
which I love because I'll just lay there in a meditative state and watch the movie that the music creates inside of me. Yes, because the gift of seeing, you see, and there's a term for what you are able to do. For. It's called drishti. Uh-huh. The re. You're the re in there? Drishti. It's because the seers, who are known as rishis, yes. have sight. They have their third eye open. And yeah. the word Buddha comes from the word buddhi. This is the buddhi. Awakened. The buddhi faculty. That which discerns one thing from another is buddhi. Yeah. So this is the discernment eye. These are the duality eyes. They're not yeah. wrong. They just need to be gone beyond to see the whole picture. Right. Right? So yeah. if you have these eyes open, when you hear the Vedic mantra, you go, you get tuned up to it. And isn't this the body-mind connection? Yeah. Isn't this the part that the allopathic doctors are not talking about? Yeah. The nutrition and the sound vibration and all of these realities. Yeah. Keeping us healthy. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Now, before you read your poem, I don't think you covered all four uh, rules or laws of the Sanskrit language. I think you got to the third one. All right. Grammar, so then. Grammar, etymology. Yeah. The next is the correct pronunciation so we can do the mantras like we just did. Right. Which is called the phonetics. Yep. Which is important because. If you had not pronounced those words right, I would have not gotten that vision. I would have gotten something else. Right. You know, and it's in interesting that vision is very strong in me. It's still lingering. And, and what I feel is that I saw me standing next to probably the ganja because I can see all around me buildings that look like I'm in India, but I'm watching this beautiful, powerful sunrise and I'm standing next to the river in namaste to the sun which is a very interesting experience but but the point was if you did not pronounce those words right because i've got enough experience with this it would have created a completely different image that's very well said did you know that symbiotica means harmony and you're really likely to enjoy my podcast with shervin jafariah the founder of symbiotica Symbiotic is an amazing company that makes excellent products to aid healing, enhance longevity, and improve performance at all levels of your being, from your spiritual practices to your athletic endeavors. I highly recommend you go to Symbiotica.com and check out their top-notch organically sourced products that include excellent tasting supplements like their Synergy Vitamin B12, which elevates energy naturally, to their Shilajé minerals, which help you better regulate your hormonal system. Their biocharge activated coconut charcoal is an excellent detox support and removes toxins and poisons from the body quickly and non-invasively. Their organic longevity formula is one of my friends and students' favorites. They rave about it. I really enjoy their Regenesis liposomal glutathione for its amazing antioxidant powers, which is really helpful for anyone that enjoys vaporizing tobacco and herbs like I do. They also have great immune support products, water filtration options for drinking and showering, and some cool clothing and more. When you go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use your Living 4D discount code, which is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 on checkout, you get 15% off anything they sell and you won't be disappointed. 
Enjoy Symbiotica. You know, I'm having fun. Just We're brothers from another mother, I'm sure of it, my friend. So guess what? There's a mantra that is 108 names of the sun. Yes, that's the why there's mala beads with 108, right? Not exactly. Okay. But that's why 108 facets of the sun were chosen. Uh-huh. But you're onto something with the 108. 108 adds to 9. And uh-huh. 9 is the base number for all the astronomy. 9 planets, 9. Uh, and all. if you count the number of times of seconds that we breathe and all of that, all the big numbers of breaths in a day yeah. add up to 9. So the numerology that underpins this is part of its perfection. Yeah. As a, as a manifest reality. But the word sun, uh, the, there are, I'll only do a few of them, but there's a mantra that goes, Om Surya Aryaman Bhaga Tvastar Pushan Arka Savitar Ravi. Now imagine your sunbathing. And in the first mantra, we were getting a general dose of sunshine. Now imagine that in this sunbathing, we become a professional sunbather and we're getting each vitamin, 108 specific vitamins from each sound vibration. And that the sun is a ruby with 108 facets mm-hmm. and a different ray is emanating, scientifically speaking, from each of those facets, each of which has a particular healing ability. Yeah. Have you ever heard the word or name Umbakara before? It's I've heard it as Triambakam. It's part of the Mahamritunjaya mantra to Shiva for the removal of poison and toxins. Interesting because I did my soul guided me to being a vegetarian, a strict vegetarian for a year. I think I was 46 or 47, and also told me that I needed to get up every morning with the rising sun and spend an hour in meditation with the sun, Egyptian sun gazing, and then also in the evening. And I did that every day for a year and I had profound experiences. But what happened was to make a long story short, I kept seeing this man coming to me and he was just gorgeous. And he looked like I would have suspected Jesus would have looked like as a Middle Eastern man. And he had all these beautiful clothes on that were embroidered and he had a hat kind of like a Rastafarian and his clothes would change uh, from time to time. But I said to him, who are you? He said, I am the spirit of the sun. And I said, what is your name? And he said, Umbakara. And it took me a while to, to understand what he was saying, but I finally got him to say, yes, you've got it right. And it was Long story made short, I said to my soul, I said, is there anything about Umbakara in my library? My soul said, yes. I said, please show me where. My soul guided me to one of my big theosophy texts, which told me to go to, I think it was page 534, and there in bold letters was Umbakara, the spirit of the sun, worshipped by many cultures, blah, blah, blah. And I was blown away. So I was just curious if you'd ever heard that uh, word before, because it's very hard to find any other uh, explanations of it. Of course, the, you see, this is the pronunciation problem. So you'd ask me again, again to finish with the four subjects that are the sciences that keep Sanskrit from what? 
getting so let's put a name on it. From, lingu- from, from linguistic drift. Right. Yes. That's a, that's a, I understand. I've heard that before. So let's say that you heard that word, but you heard it with a Southern accent. So it sounded a little bit different than normal pronunciation. So this is what's happening is that we're channeling or we're connecting or we're having, but we don't have a programming language in which to receive what's coming in that is so precise that it doesn't vary one iota over thousands and thousands of years. Well, it was, it was precise enough for me to find it in a book, and there it was. That's my point. That, so therefore, your pronunciation may still be not quite, but almost. Right. So one of the three primary divine beings within material nature is someone named Shiva. Yes, I, I'm uh, very familiar. <laughs> and his female Shakti counterpart yep. right. is Durga. Okay. Okay. Now, they have different names. Yes. Because of the different functions they perform. But the mantra to Shiva is the one that is chanted when we feel poisoned, we have cancer, we have a terminal disease, we're infected, we have something that we're trying to get rid of that's a toxin. And this particular mantra is called the Maha Mritun Jaya, that which gives victory over death, meaning over something that's about to give your body death. Mm-hmm. So the mantra says, Om Triambakam Yajahamahe Sugandim Pushtivardhanam Udavarukamihiva Bandhanam Mrityor Mukshiya Mamritata If a person has a terminal so-called disease that no one thinks they can do anything about they're recommended to chant that mantra 200,000 times yeah that's very interesting can i tell you what i saw when you did that mm-hmm. i saw images of medicine men and shaman in native cultures all over the world performing healing ceremonies feeding people herbs burning sage and rattling and drumming in stone circles almost everywhere. Absolutely, because all of those, Shiva and Durga, are father and mother nature. Yeah, All yeah. of those beings who are living in nature trying to sincerely cooperate are the children of mother and father nature. And that's exactly what myself and my wife Angie do for a living. She's a highly trained shaman. We have a... a stone circle and we have uh, an, a labyrinth and we do healing work and that's what my institute's all about so your primary then here's a term ishta devatas the deva and devi you work for every day is father and mother nature or shiva and durga yeah how beautiful isn't it lovely now i'll add one piece to that So then the story goes on to explain more about them. So Shiva has three heads. Durga has nine. Now, having three heads is kind of like having three superpowers. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that Mother Nature has nine. Right. Not too long ago, the day on which she's honored was honored in India and throughout the world as the day in which we chant the mantra to Durga and the, the, 
the celebration of her day is actually not one day. It's nine days in a row at the planting of crops and the harvesting twice a year. Yeah, that makes sense. And she has nine specific personalities, starting with her as a young girl and going all the way up to her as a crone, as someone who is filled with the feminine wisdom and knows everything about life and about nature. Sophia. Yes. So the mantra goes, Om Prathamam Shailaputricha Dvitiyam Brahmacharini Tritiyam Chandraganteti Kushmandeti Chaturtakam Panchamam Skandamateti Shashtam Satkatyakaneti Cha Saptamam Kavaratriti Mahagauridi Shashtamam Navamam Siridatri Cha Navadurga Prakirtita Uktanye Tani Namani Brahmanaiva Mahatmanaha One who associates with these nine aspects of Mother Nature becomes a Mahatma and sees everything as it really is and is able to be in the service of all beings. Want to know what I saw? First, I saw the ocean. Then I saw clouds forming. Then I saw rain. And I saw a powerful storm with a tornado. Then I saw spring. Then I saw summer. Then I saw the leaves changing color and falling off. And then I saw winter. And it ended with emptiness, just pure stillness and no image at all <laughs> and this is the sacred trust of the rishis they pass this on by initiation by vibration and then instead of it happening by just grace or by instinct or any other method these invocations can be done which place us in the presence of the beings who are serving all by being in the laws of nature as their personified representative. Mm -hmm. And all the indigenous culture saw all of these beings in various dress, in various aspects, because we're all sitting on an angle to the laws of nature according to where we live. Yeah. So for each of us, the way we operate in that environment has to be adjusted to that environment mm -hmm. we can't pretend if we live as an eskimo and then go to the equator the way we so-called worship will change yes but the did, spirit in which we do it will not shift right did uh, the, sincerity. did the the visions that i just shared with you have any correlation to the words of course who is the, what is the water except the, the Uma? Oh, yeah, divine. It's the mother of all. Yeah, the divine ocean. In, in all of its forms, that is the amniotic fluid of the divine mother. <laughs> yeah. All of those words apply. Yeah, the sense I got was that as you were chanting, spirit was showing me the manifestations of great mother in her different stages of life. 
That's right. Like, like a circle showing me the, the vibration from point to point on a circle, like the 12 symbols of the Zodiac. Yes. And, and while we're there, two things. I'll do the, the next poem, which is about the Zodiac. And then this initiation that we were just touching on with Shiva and Durga, mm-hmm. this is the rite of passage at puberty. Mm. How beautiful. This is so we understand why we're wearing a genital, which is the symbol of those two aspects of nature. Yes, which uh, used to be worshipped as God. The the uh, I have a beautiful series of two two part book, very exotic, very expensive, and hard to get old books written in the late eighteen hundreds by Major General Forlong, who was a British general whose hobby was the study of the history of religion. And everywhere he went in the world, he studied the history of the religion. Religion. So these books are probably uh, oh, they're probably about seven eight hundred pages each. And they come with a, a map that's about seven feet tall, showing the entire history of what people worshipped as God. And the first was trees, and the second was the lingam and the yoni. That's right. Which is because they are the same. What we were just discussing. Shakti and Shiva, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Shakti and Shiva. And you could think of the, so I'll tell you something about the, the Shiva part. So the Shiva is from a Rudra. Uh, Shiva and Rudra are the same being. Rudra is the, you might call it, deconstructing form of Shiva. But he has an original form in which he comes from the realm of beyond matter and transports all of us into the realm of matter. Mm -hmm. And he's called Shambhu when he does that. So there are names for functions, and the functions are aspects of a being. And the aspects of the being are the manifest process of processes of bringing things into existence. And so the the entire concept of devas and devis gives us our horoscope, which is the blueprint of the karma we're carrying. Mm -hmm. That is the manufacturing specifications of the body we're driving. Yeah. And the body we're driving is called the karana, mm. from which we get the English word car. Right. Yeah. And and there must be a correlation to the Egyptian Merkaba. All of these. Because they all were passing the same ideas around, but they just had a different accent, so they spoke it a little different. Yeah. But it's the same issue, essence. What's the diva that carries you back home when your physical body dies you talked about the one that carries us in who carries us home well there are two processes of leaving your body the first is when you're still uh, in the chains of cause and effect here in which case no harm no foul but divine beings from devaloka come to get you and they're called yama dutas And Yama Raja is the Devic being to whom we are taken when we leave one body. And I like to put it this way. This is my story of it. He then shows us our movie. And it's our whole life with commentary and the karmic points we got for various things we did with volition. And then at the end, they add up the karma points and show you your number of karma points, 
your place in the process of learning in the university and that your next birth is going to be over there. And so they say, this many karma points, they take you to the used karma lot. <laughs> show you your next mom and dad in your next vehicle. And they go, there you go. No punishment, no anger, no, you're horrible, none of that. Mm. Just a very reasonable, civilized process. And you're just there in the waiting room, and then they show you your movie, and then you get ready for your next womb. And then you go down and you land in your next womb, and then you come out in your next body. And you go, deja vu, haven't I done some of this before? And this leads us to the poem. Yeah, let me, I'm going I'm to be, I'm going to empty myself for this. Go ahead. And this is that I've been a Vedic astrologer. I've been an astrologer since 1969. Actually, since 1965, excuse me. And then a Vedic astrologer since 1969. I was trained for three years in 1973 in the ancient knowledge of how our birth moment can indicate some of the karmas that we're carrying with us and is the blueprint of the vehicle that we're driving or flying here in the manifestation of matter. So as a Jyotishi means the science of light, it means the eye of knowledge. And so this poem is called The Eye of Knowing. Within the sparkling firmament, echoes of the things we meant, flotsam and jetsam in waves of time, shine beyond where birds can climb and slowly descend to where we sit, delivered by each elliptical orbit. While devas, only doing their jobs, steal the money from one who robs, repay the innocent once made poor, drop a newborn baby outside a door, a foundling who is someday meant to change the world as president. For nothing is ever what it seems when debts are paid for ancient schemes and underneath the bodily costume who resides in that darkened room remains a mystery still unknown, a secret traveler behind that persona. We never know where each other has been. Men who were women, women who were men, a costume change, then back on stage. And the mighty king is now a page. While winking stars who know the secret reveal it to all those who seek it. Behind the purple curtained sky, the cause and effect that did not die, encrypted in each silver moat, a lover's kiss, an unread note, the repartee to unkind words, a sorting out of cryptic proverbs coming around and going down, following the sender to each new town, a drama in which none are innocents, leaving a trail of divine fingerprints. There is no defense against cause and effect, no mountain or fortress that can protect no way to evade the cosmic law with witnesses to every drama who saw exactly what transpired in every deed, every action for each is but a seed, a sprout in the garden of destiny, descending in the planet's 
periodicity, the ephemeral and an ephemeris, transformed to time like circumstances, hidden meanings, an innuendo, moonbeams passing through our window, no more secrets than they are letting on, and another will follow when the last is gone. Yes, this is samsara, the ocean of action, pleasure and pain, but no satisfaction. You can order anything they serve, but the waiter only brings what you deserve. The science of time, the eye of knowing, the secret messages that are not showing, the answer to your every wish, the science of karma in light. Jyotish. Yeah, I, I had so many visions with that. Um, it's interesting, though, I don't, the, the, the visceral experience and the sharpness of the visions, when you say it, things in Sanskrit, it's as though I am transported into another, like I'm astral traveling or remote viewing, but the English, um, it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, um. Uh, I have to, I have to uh, work harder to pick up the images. But uh, real quickly, the first image that came to me as you were talking was a central beam of the undivided light, and then I saw two dragons, just like the catechus, weaving up the light. And when the two of them got together at top, and their faces, noses touched. There was an explosion, and then I was in the universe, and I was watching stars explode, planets be formed, stars and planets exploding, planets being formed. And then as it went on, I began seeing like balls with acting and masks and people acting out dramas. And then shortly after you said, talked about that, but it came to me like a sentence before I started seeing that. And then I saw the entire universe full of beings watching the drama that were not in it. They were watching it and people were getting knives speared through them, weddings, births, accomplishments. And I saw all these beings so emotionally involved that even though they knew it was the divine play, there was tremendous emotion and sadness when somebody they loved would die, but great joy. And it was as though that the theater of life is tiny compared to the souls that are witnessing it all. Marvelous. And as you said, that last image, you know, these mysterious devas and devis that have caused so much chaos amongst the Abrahamic religions. Yes. They just don't know what to do about it. It's very simple because we, as we become yogis and as we are finishing getting into the PhD program within matter, the question of whether we entirely want to come back, the, the, it would be answered with come back and do what? Right. Then they're done that is the same. Yes. I, I, if you're at 80%, you, you would say, well, but I've only got, I'm only interested in this, 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 and this. Don't waste my time with the rest. So when that happens, your next birth is on 
we'll place 10 locas, loca number 10, and we're loca number eight. Location in English came from the Sanskrit loka. Mm. It means realm. So we bump up two levels and become devas and devis for a lifetime. And they're the audience watching our drama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. So from there, we see it all. Then when we come back, that's what you did last lifetime, what I did last lifetime, all the yogis did last lifetime. They went human, jump, deva, drop, human again, and here again. Why? And the why question is what dominates their life. Yes. If the what can I get question dominates, you're in a lower grade. That's all. You're just still getting the experience. When nobody can buy you, when no one can offer you enough of anything to buy you, yeah, you're done. You go, done. Thank you. Yeah. My big question since as long as I can remember being a child is why and how and who? Yep. Who, who am I? Why am I here? And how did it happen? Why is this happening? Why does that happen? How does it happen? That's driven my entire life. Who, why, and how? And those are the questions I have to answer to help people heal. Absolutely. Who am I? Because if you don't know that, yeah, who am I? Because if you don't know that, you don't know who's pulling the strings inside of you. Why did it happen? So you don't do it again. And how did it happen? So you understand the cause and effect of your choices. Jeffrey, I I absolutely love this. I'm I'm having just such beautiful experiences, just particularly when you speak the Sanskrit language, as we've been sharing with the audience, and and I've been sharing what I've had and in, in happening inside of me. And and I'd love it if you could uh, share why that is happening and why that's so important. Certainly, Paul, and it's an important part of my story, in any rate, in the sequence of unfoldment, because I went to university for five years, my degrees in psychology, literature, poetry, and then I went into an ashram for five years and was a celibate monk at age 23 to 28. And during that time, for another talk, I created a rock opera that uh, traveled up and down the East Coast of the United States and wrote four albums of music, teaching this yogic Vedic knowledge in English with rock and roll. And then after that ashram, I went uh, on to study Jyotish for three years, the Vedic astrology. After that, I got married and went back to university, got a degree in history and comparative religion and studied Sanskrit under a very, very profound Sanskrit teacher. So I had a guru of the Vedas, a guru of Vedic astrology, Jyotish, then a guru of Sanskrit. Now, I spent five years in the ashram, and I laughed when you said about your boxing, because as soon as I got to the ashram, they looked at me, Armstrong, hmm, you should study martial arts and be a protector of the ashram. Mm. So I've studied Ishinru, Gojo-ru, Shotokan, uh, Judo, Chinese Kung Fu, uh, Taekwondo, Hapkido, uh, your, um, Olympic sword fighting, and rapier. Wow. 
And so my entire life had martial arts and horseback riding playing in the background for the 20 years of my first marriage and when I was going to university and then working in Silicon Valley, I rode and trained horses for 20 years uh, as a professional. In fact, wow. I invented something called the horse scope, which is matching the horoscope of your horse and the rider. Wow, cool. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if you know this, but I grew up riding horses and rode in the rodeo when I was young. Did you really? Yeah, and oh. I, of course, was a martial artist and a wow. soldier. <laughs> we are other brother for sure. Yeah, pretty wild. Now, the only reason I didn't become a soldier was I was conscious already when it came time for Vietnam. And my father was president of the draft board, but uh, let's just say that these are not the droids you want, was what I said to the uh, to the U.S. government. And they said, yes, whatever you say, oh, master of psychology. <laughs> and so they found me unsuitable. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> unsuitable to fight for unjust causes. I think that's really good. In, in my own words, unsuitable to kill women and children in Vietnam with uh, horrible weapons. Hi, everybody. You know, people from around the world are constantly asking me where they can find organic foods and supplements that are actually organic, not just some fake impersonation, which is sadly so common in the marketplace today. My most common suggestion is go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, where you can find a wide range of excellent nutritious products made from certified organic source materials. Organifi has superfood drinks that actually taste great, <laughs> unlike most, immune support products, excellent high-quality protein powders, digestive support, joint support, liver support, green juice, hormonal support, and menstrual ease nutrition formulated by a team of female herbologists for women and more. My family and I and a significant number of my clients and friends and students from around the world use and love Organifi products because they're nutritious, taste great, and unlike many products, you actually get what you pay for. Hallelujah! I love Organifi's high values and high quality products and they're excellent for athletes, children, and the whole family. There's no better investment than investing in your own health and well-being. And when it comes to investing in my health and the health of my family, I go to Organifi. If that's not enough to make you want to explore all the amazing products waiting for you at Organifi, I'd love to sweeten the deal for you by offering you a special Living 4D with Paul Check discount of 20% on any of Organifi's excellent certified organic, super clean, nutritious products by using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20 on checkout. That's Check 20, all caps, on checkout. I hope you enjoy Organifi as much as my family and I do. When you and I met in our preparation meeting for the podcast, you had some really amazing things to share about your experience working with Apple Computer and how that those realizations have played out quite heavily in the world today, which I really wanted to, to have the audience hear. Because I think it's really profound what you shared and, and why you ultimately left the computer business. So I'd love it if you could spend a few minutes sort of giving us the, your, your inner experience and views of that and what that might mean to us today. So early 1980s, um, 1977, yeah, about, about 1980, actually, um, my wife and I had a three-year-old child at that time. I'm on my way get a PhD in South Asian studies. Had I followed that destiny, I would be still probably a professor at a university 
talking about these subjects from that perspective, right? from that posture. But instead, I had to go back to Santa Cruz with my wife, where I had been living before, and daughter, and immediately go get a job uh, in corporate Silicon Valley. And I had never had a corporate job in my life. Just working construction, jobs I did to work my way through university, but never a real corporate out in the world job at that level. Answered a job ad from Apple Computer. No idea who they were. Never played a video game or touched a computer at this point. Walked into the interview and there were 13 Arabs sitting on cushions on the floor in a circle. And as I walked into the room, I looked at them in some surprise and said, Salam Alaikum. <laughs> I'd studied the Quran. Yeah. Religion. So they looked at me and they just about peed the floor. They just <laughs> looked at me like, Alaikum Salam. And I said, Kepahalik. <laughs> and they said, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. You know, Mr. Armstrong, this job is to sell Apple computers in the Middle East. Oh, cool. And I said, oh, my gosh, I read the ad blog. I thought it said the Midwest, and I hate the Midwest. <laughs> the next day, I was the 453rd job applicant and got the job. And eight weeks later, I was in Saudi Arabia selling Apple computers to Aramco, Bechtel, and having parties with the ambassador um, of the ambassadors of the Middle East in Saudi Arabia. I went on eight week trips to the Middle East supporting the computer sales of 30 Apple dealers in the Arab world and uh, sell them all you can. That was all I could say. <laughs> wow. And so I did that then for the next seven years. I was a sales executive in Silicon Valley at first for Apple for a couple of years, and then on to other corporations. I made up the term at that time, corpseration, that dead place I go each day. Yeah. And so I got inside both technology just as it was exploding. The Apple II that I was selling in Saudi Arabia when I started had a language card in slot zero, and I knew Steve Jobs, Abcator, Bill Gates, all of them. They were just CEOs at the time. And I went to parties with them and did the same places with them and flew on airplanes with them and got to know the technology because the Apple II had a special language card in slot zero with a hard switch and could go back and forth between Arabic and English. It was the first bilingual computer in existence. Wow. The Apple II with a language card in slot zero. And Wozniak and a guy named Ab Kader in Egypt uh, designed this as engineers. So I was selling the world's first bilingual personal computer and present in Silicon Valley as it exploded. So very quickly, what happened was because of who I was already, I, I actually made a T-shirt for myself while I worked there. It said, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm schizophrenic, and so am I. <laughs> And when someone laughed, I'd say, we're glad you like it. This was my way of saying, I'm walking between two worlds here. I was never attracted to this hard science world. And where it's going was already bothering me. Yeah. So I was an outsider insider. And here I am promoting this technology because we all have to have a J-O-B. Yeah. But at the same time, 
I'm watching the historical trends and seeing where it's going. So after about seven or eight years in, by about 1986, six or seven years in, I graduate from everyday work, become a consultant on networking in Silicon Valley into local communities. And what happened next is quite remarkable. One night, it was a thunderstorm outside. I was working on my computer and lightning struck the satellite dish on the roof of my house. It rendered me unconscious. I was leaning on the keyboard, drooling on numlock. And I sat back up awake and looked and on the screen was a prayer in 18 point times Roman called the keyboard prayer. And it, in this moment, I began to understand that something very special was happening. And I became Saint Silicon, the founder of the world's first computer religion, where everything is gig chip, the church of heuristic information processing, the hunt and peck method of salvation, the world's first user-friendly religion, where everything is gigo, garbage in, gospel out. And so friends, if you've ever lost any data, put your hand on your computer and let's pray together. Are you ready? Our program, who art in memory. Hello be thy name. Thy operating system come. Thy commands be done. At, at the keyboard as it is on the screen, give us this day our daily data and forgive us our I.O. errors for those whose logic circuits are faulty. Lead us not into frustration and deliver us from power surges. For thine is the algorithm, the application, and the solution looping forever and ever return. Say, hell. Hallelujah. Wow. I reinvented myself, Paul. As a high-tech comedian, I went out and got 50000 in venture capital money from someone who was willing to give it away to me. I put together the world's first computer religion, CHIP, the Church of Heuristic Information Processing. I wore a priest's robe with a chip on my forehead, flew on airplanes that way, a priest stole made out of computer chips and motherboards and a heart that blinked in red LEDs before such things existed from an engineer in Silicon Valley. Made up like a priest, I went to computer shows with 300,000 geeks. They're learning about technology and lived in the world as St. Silicon, the founder of the world's first computer religion, a.k.a the world's first computer comedian and satirist against where technology was taking us. Yes, and I think that's phenomenal and, and how amazing to have you here right now to tell everyone listening how you feel the situation we're in is the outcropping of that very reason for you doing what you just described. Well, Paul, what everyone saw if they were paying attention and what everyone knew if they were at the cutting edge of technology was that everyone who knew saw the potential for this to link us all in the marvelous way it's doing yeah. and for it to get inside of us and make us into automatons and be used as a tool of dominance as the vaccine passport is showing conclusively. Yeah, absolutely. We are on the back porch of a totalitarian situation in which we are penetrated by the rulers of our world irrevocably 
and they tell us everything to do with our body. They own it completely. They're inside it. We wear a chip. And my little joke when I go to the store and buy groceries is I wave my hand over the credit card device. And then I go, oh, we still need these credit cards, don't we? Yeah. And then I make a joke and say, we don't want to become automatons, do we? Right. So I became acutely aware of this and was the first person to satirize it. I made a professional career as a corporate speaker, making 100000 or more per year, making fun of technology, ridiculing it, and warning the world about it. And I did that for a full 10 years as St. Silicon. How, how, Jeffrey, in your opinion, do we use the technology in life affirmative, favorable ways? Like you and I are using this technology to help people wake up and be aware. And we've talked about the importance of the Sanskrit language, the purity of the vibration, the etymology, you know, the, the computer. And the whole thing, you know, one could have the urge to be very Amish about it and just throw it all out the window. But I don't think that's a realistic proposition. I don't think that's ever going to happen, no matter what, unless the world comes to end by nuclear fusion or explosion. But, you know, I tell people, look, a computer, uh, any of these devices make far better tools than masters. And if you let them become your master, then you're in deep shit. But I use it to write books and help people and make programs. So how do we find the middle path, the, the, the Taoist middle path or the Buddhist Zen path? Because I feel that we're on a precipice of, of, of self-destruction due to all this brainwashing and programming. So, Paul, that question actually lands us right back here. Good. That's where I want to get to before we run out of time, too. Because this took place in the middle of not a war, because the ancients were wise enough in India to never include the civilian population in a conflict over politics. That's interesting. They had a football field, and they all went out on the football field, and whoever won was the next ruler. Right. They didn't mess around with voting because it's a joke anyway, because power is always going to rule. And just like right now, we have a bunch of crazy billionaires who and trillionaires we're running our world and we're pretending that our governments are, but the governments are being told what to do by the people with the real power, which is all that money. You know these things and your listeners know these things through you yeah, and, and mine increasingly through me. So this Gita was spoken so that first and foremost, you must have a core identity that cannot be broken. Right. That's the first thing. That's step one in my philosophy. What is your dream for your life? Because if you don't have a clear dream, then your compass has no north on it. You're, you're, you're lost. That's right. And clear dream actually should mean simply that we are all immortal beings and we are all here on a journey. Yeah. And the fabric here is very fragile. It is. And all the indigenous cultures were showing us, including India, be careful. You have to stay in harmony with this planet and not destroy it. And work carefully to replenish it for each generation. Yes. And this is the simple message that we must speak to everyone. That is two things. We are individuals and that must be honored no matter what technology we develop. 
Yes. Therefore, there must be sacrosanct areas of our autonomy that cannot be invaded, cannot be directed, cannot be forced. And this is the difference between the well-being paradigms of Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, indigenous medicine, all of these things, yoga. So these are doing battle with one lifetime worldviews, which indirectly justify technology doing whatever it wants and the whole thing careening out of control. We are at such a pivotal moment that perhaps while you and I are still living, for me at 75, I may have a decade or a little more, if I'm fortunate, to participate in this and to inspire people to go back to rubbing their head and patting their belly, to be properly embodied, to live properly on the planet, and be in touch with one Yes. But if in touch with one another is allowed to become totalitarian like the vaccine passports are, then that is the, the first and worst step we've ever seen on a global basis of proposing that everyone be an automaton. Yes. We must not allow that to happen. Well, we can't because here's the paradox, and I've spoken about this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. The people that are behind all of this and the Great Reset, which they claim in Klaus Schwab's documents are to protect nature, are the very corporation owners that have destroyed the planet. And if we are allowed to become their automatons, we will become vehicles of the dismantling of Mother Nature to the point that until we have transitioned, this is, of course, uh, being tongue in cheek, into being robots that don't need the elements, the food, the, the, the seasons, the, we don't need nature. Uh, we're we're going to go extinct for damn sure. And we're going to, we've already killed, current statistics show 60% of the animal population on this planet have died in the last 50 years. And 75% of the insect population has died in the last 50 years. We're wiping out the bees. We're wiping out the trees. Steiner said, Human life, as you know it, depends on two things, bees and trees. And when they reach a critical level, your life will cease to exist as you know it. And we are right on the very edge of collapsing the entire system. And one of the things I wrote while you were talking is that, to me, one of the most critical things that has to happen on a global scale is we've got to get back to a legitimate spiritual practice, which includes worship and rituals that bring us back into the harmony of the seasons and the functions of the seasons and the rhythms of the earth. And we've got to use those rituals as a means of truly staying connected to ourself, our soul, because without those, we don't know when technology is becoming the surrogate for our soul. We are now in what Steiner calls the possession of Eremon or the spirit of material existence. Gosh, I love you. Well, I love you too, because, you know, both of us have been around long enough and are studied enough and wise enough and practiced enough to, to, to have a, a, a compass that points to truth. And, you know, I'm deathly, deadly concerned for the children on this planet because they have been raised on all these computer games and brainwashing, and they haven't got a clue how to plant a plant or find water or anything and and these people behind this shit they're ruthless they have no problem injecting no. people poisoning them killing stop them stop there 
Yeah. Stop there. And now a word from our sponsor. Yes, please. This is because of our common least favorite human being right now. And this poem is called No Mars, No Star Wars Bars. You want to go to Mars to build a chain of Star Wars bars and a string of alien bazaars because you are jealous of the stars. You want to pollute the sky to find more real estate to buy, a distraction toward which to fly, so you can avoid the question why, why we exist, our true being, the meaning of the sacred life we are seeing, and from what we are fleeing, or how empty space will help us freeing, but you point our focus toward space. With a serious look on your trusty face, as if it is a healthy place for members of the human race. But all this space talk is just a distraction from the secret human interactions which divide us all into numerous factions to provide the wealthy with more satisfactions while we are told that this is progress to an endless night of emptiness, leaving planet Earth a mess. And this is their meaning of success while any idiot can see that there is no planet B or C, no other place we can be safe, sound, relaxed, and free. But crazy nerds with too much dough are looking for another place to go as if life is a video and sci-fi novel or TV show. Space is not the final frontier and Star Wars bars don't have better beer. These are distractions from being here and becoming enlightened, truthful, and clear. So give up the interstellar quest and live your life so the earth is blessed. Replant the planet and the forests for life is a class and how we live the test. Yeah, how beautiful and how just so true. You know, one of the things I've researched is is the spiritual orientation. And I've seen researchers that have looked into what's in the vaccines and they're, they've highlighted that one of the things that it's designed to do is knock out the gene, they say, is related to our desire for spiritual worship. Mm -hmm. And I found that every one of these people is a self-proclaimed atheist. And so this whole uh, computer and scientific materialistic Pass vaccine passport, the whole damn thing is driven by people that don't see beyond anything except what they can own, accumulate, and control, which to me, paradoxically, as a guy who's been studying and, and practicing psychotherapy and depth psychology for a very long time, is really a classic example of an of an un of an unconscious state of being in fear. When someone's afraid, they have to try to surround themselves with illusions of, of uh, protection. And so if you take that to the extreme, that means you got to own and control everything because you're afraid of anything you can't control or see, uh, which means you have no spiritual fiber in you. And uh, something that Jung said in this regard is very profound. And for all of you atheists listening, I have no problem with atheism. I think it's a lot safer than confused religion, uh, except when you get to the level of Bill Gates and th these guys. But Jung said in regard to atheism, he said, for something to be rejected, it must first be real. 
So the very act of atheism itself is a very form of unconscious worship. I say it's time to, to become conscious and ask the deeper questions. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? And what's this all for? And, you know, Bruce Lipton does a great job of pointing out that we are in a garden and that there is not competition in a garden. There's cooperation. And that garden is the source of our bodies and the source of our life. And if we don't get back to tending to the garden, then we are going to become something other. But we cannot exist in that other in this dimension of reality called planet Earth. You know, because we've only got a few minutes left, what I'd like to close out with, and I'm deeply grateful for everything you've shared. I'm very grateful that uh, Laurel Erica introduced me to you. Um, and I do want to do many more podcasts because there's lots I'd like to unpack with you for the benefit of myself and everybody else. But what is the lesson of the Bhagavad Gita as it applies to us now? Because I found myself wanting to read the Bhagavad Gita again to revisit Krishna's conversation with Arjuna when he was afraid to go into battle with knowing that he would have to kill his own family members. And this whole vaccine shit has divided families, including my own, like I've never seen before. And there's a lot of people out there that are in a lot of pain because they're watching their own family members go out and and fall into the trap. And many of them have gotten seriously injured and died. I must have had a hundred people right now let me know someone in their family died within days of being vaccinated or was seriously injured. And their lives are turned inside out and they warned their family members not to do that because they're common sense people. So how do we take that lesson from Krishna and Arjuna and in the Bhagavad Gita? And I encourage everybody to read uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey's book, The Bhagavad Gita Comes Alive, because it's really powerful and it's very beautiful. Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've all heard of the benefits of bone broth but I bet you don't know about bone broth protein powder. I found an awesome bone broth protein powder with Paleo Valley, and I asked Autumn Smith if she'd explain why hers is so good from Paleo Valley. Well, like you said, collagen is basically the fountain of youth, and most of us are not getting enough of it in our diet because maybe we don't have time to simmer bones on a regular basis. And so we created our powder to make getting the benefits of collagen for your joint health, for your gut health, for your mental health, really, really simple. And we sourced it from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished bones. So it is a beef bone broth protein powder that you can literally put in everything. It's tasteless. I add it to my son's smoothies. I put it into his desserts. You can even put it in soup and get all the benefits of collagen without all of the time and energy and investment. So all you have to do to check it out is go to our website at paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15. That's lowercase C-H-E-K-15 at checkout. And I hope your family loves it. I know you'll love it. Keep your body healthy. Keep your kids healthy. And let's make the world a better place with Paleo Valley. Enjoy. While I still remember, I just want to set a name out to everyone. You may know her, but her name uh, is Vandana Shiva. Study her all the time. I read her book, Oneness Versus the 1%. I've promoted it on almost every podcast for the last year since that book came out because it unveils Bill Gates like nobody's business and all of his companies 
and the serious threat to all of us. The fact that that man is not in a very deep hole in the ground with solid vault doors with Fauci sitting next to him is a mystery to me. Absolutely. So I'm so glad to hear you say this. So let me just share this from the heart and from the Buddhi with everyone. My beloveds, if you're hearing these words, the most important thing to understand is that none of us can die. This is the basis of having real courage without having to become hateful and without having to become against others in spite of their actions. The whole concept of a family fighting against itself, that is the basis of the speaking of the Bhagavad Gita when Krishna spoke it thousands of years ago, is to leave behind a user's manual on how to act in this world as if you're an immortal being visiting here and to therefore be careful while being here and to never be afraid of losing yourself and to not let another take away the intrinsic rights that from come from being an immortal being visiting here, which is your right to speak, your right to act, your uh, right to be here and interact with the environment and others. All of those freedoms are what are resting upon the concept of not being afraid and not thinking that others can kill you and not letting them intimidate you because this is the basic principle. Hitler said it. I know Paul knows this one very well. He said the secret is getting everyone to be afraid. Fear is how you control. So the most important Vedic teaching is that we are immortal beings. And this is why we hunger for immortality. This is why a part of us knows that we don't want to die and we can't die. And then we keep forgetting. That forgetfulness is the only enemy. As soon as you remember who you truly are, then this open channel that Paul is embodying, that I'm embodying each in our own way, that all the shaman and all the wisdom-based beings, atmas, throughout history have embodied, was to show that they were not ruled by fear and that they were willing to ultimately, if it was necessary, be removed from their body rather than speak a doctrine that is untrue, and that their doctrine must always remain loving of every living entity, even those who are pitted against them temporarily. Because then we speak in the right mood. Otherwise, we're made into the image that we're fighting by being made hateful, and we do hate speech rather than truth tell. Yes. Truth tell must come from the heart. And the entire experience must come from there. So if I may, Paul, one more poem. And this one is called, There Is No Death. And it is directly the essence of yoga and the Vedic knowledge. I will not sleep in a sepulcher with a moldy bed and furniture, waiting and unsure of my future. I will not fill with formaldehyde the veins that once had my blood inside. As if uncertain my body has died, I will not purchase an expensive box, a teak wood cell with silver locks, in the hopes my grave will outlast rocks. 
I will not invest in real estate in the hopes my corpse will matriculate and awaken again at a future date. I am not unsure about what comes next and will not leave some witty text to carve on marble my death the pretext. I do not want some droning choir afraid of hell in brimstone's fire with a priest whose sermons are for hire. I would rather you feed me to the vultures or use my ashes for agriculture than join a graveyard's pointless culture. Instead, use the money to feed the poor. Tell them my passing left them more. I'll hear them laughing on my way out the door. Consign my body to the flames. Have a dance, chant the holy names, tell funny stories, play happy games, cheer and shout and celebrate my flight. Cry and laugh and hug each other tight. You can be certain I am racing light out to the edge of empty space, dodging planets with a smile on my face, transferred to some amazing place so I will not need that sarcophagus. My Atma flying to realms most wondrous. After all, there is no death, so why make such a fuss? Yes, and for those of you listening that don't know what Atma means, it means soul, Atman, soul. Atman, in the Vedas, they say Atman is Brahman and Brahman is Atman, which means what your soul is, is God, and, and God is is your soul. <laughs> Not quite. Let me just make a small correction. Linguist. Please, please do. <laughs> There's one thing that was left out of your definition. Yeah. And it's not just that we are, it's that we're of the same nature. So we're eligible. And just back to your question about the Gita. In the very beginning of the Gita, when Arjuna is crying at the thought of having to oppose his beloved family. Yes. He knows he can't kill. Them. He knows. He knows everyone is immortal, technically. But he's so brokenhearted at having to oppose. Them. So the essence of that is stated right at the beginning. Bhagavan, who is the ultimate supreme source of everything, from which all the beauty that has taught us to love in this world comes from, and which we know intuitively we're supposed to go be with in a greater magnitude. We're supposed to live for beauty, to create beauty, mm -hmm. in the mood of beauty. Yes. And so that is called Bhagavan, that being who is the source of the beauty that we're always pursuing. Mm. Now, that Bhagavan and we, the Atma, is what Bhagavad Gita is. So right in the middle of Arjun's Vipathus, his empathy for the terrible situation of his world at that moment, mm -hmm. Bhagavan said, my dear Arjun, because you view me not as one, not as a great light, but because you know I am your best friend, I am going to share the secret of your being and my being with you. I am going to reveal those secrets. This is the entirely non-institutional truth. Each one of us can best friend the source of our existence. And a best friend is better than a bright flashlight. Because you can't love a flashlight. You can't love emptiness. But love is actually the basis of this entire journey. The entire journey is to teach us to know what love and beauty really is. And 
for us to find inside of ourselves the truth, which is, that is who we really are. And not let anyone or anything in the realm of matter, any temporary circumstance, convert us to another worldview than that loving, caring, dedicated, and fearless worldview. That dedicated, fearless, divine worldview is the message of the Bhagavad Gita. The rest is details. Right. Must overcome your fear. You must find some way to be steady. The chanting of mantras over and over again. Om Sri Vishnave Namaha. Om Sri Vishnave Namaha. Om Sri Vishnave Namaha. I'm going back to the balance part. See it there? This doesn't mean praying. It doesn't mean asking for something. And it does mean, yes, that you can do it too. But it's me finding my balance point and going back there. No matter what's happening out here, I'm going. Om Sri Vishnave Namaha. I'm remembering who I am. I'm an immortal being visiting here. Om Sri Vishnave Namaha. Om Sri Vishnave Namaha. Now I'm not afraid. Now my emotions are back. Now my balance is back. Now I remember that all of the people acting so crazy are beautiful, loving beings who've lost themselves for the moment. Now I'm capable of leading them there rather than to war. We must remain capable of converting every situation to beauty, love, respect, and ultimate truth. And we must hold that bigger view by holding that mood. And that, thank you, Paul, is the crucial and most essential message of the Bhagavad Gita. Truth, love, and beauty will never die. Neither will we. We should treat each other that way as far as humanly possible, even if we're fighting. Yeah. Even if it comes to that, which it may mm -hmm. as it did then. But even then, not with the wrong understanding. Yeah, more like sportsmanship, I would say. You it's know, not I even fun. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been in a lot of battles. You know, I I yeah. fought I fought for twelve years before I retired, and and um, you know, I've been able to get in the ring with some of my best friends and have absolutely intense battles. I mean, knock down, drag out, someone's gonna go down here, uh, and and but still be able to get up and hug and and know that we we grew each other. So I, I think, you know, we, we need to have the spirit of knowing what our values are, because if we don't have values, we don't know when to, um, we don't know where the line is, you know, and, and if, if we understand right now that our values, are, we have to protect each other by protecting the planet and that anything that gets in the way of the planet gets in the way of us being here together. Therefore, first principle has to be get back to the principles of nature, because without them, we've lost the plot. Everything else doesn't mean anything anymore. Thank you, Paul. This brings us to our concluding word. We are called humans. Yes. Humus. Okay. Humans. So humus or humans or homies is from a Sanskrit word, which is the name of our planet. And that name is Bhumi. Yes. Bhu means to be. B-H-U-M-I was mispronounced into Humi and Homi and human. And we are therefore Mata Bhumis 
children. Oh, you aren't going to believe what I'm about to tell you. My son's name is Mana Bumi Check. Mana, life force, Bumi, of the earth. He is the life force of the earth and his sister, Zoe, Pravana, Grace, of the earth, a beautiful bouquet of colors that contains everything of the earth. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, thank you. I, I've had just an amazing time with you and I've learned so much and had so many beautiful spiritual experiences listening to you chant in, in Sanskrit. I feel just very inspired to, as I, said on our break to get a hold of some Sanskrit chants and just use them as meditations. And, and, uh, someday I, I like maybe to hire you to teach me how to say some of the mantras properly so I can do it myself. It's the one um, thing you don't pay for. So I'll be glad to do so. Cool. Well, uh, tell people where they can find your Vedic Academy, um, of arts and sciences, Vasa so that they can track you down in any other contacts you'd like to share, such as websites as we close here. Thank you. Well, the Bhagavad Gita comes alive.com. Okay, good. And, and, and jeffreyarmstrong.com. And if you look on YouTube, you'll find a variety of uh, movies and videos and things under that name. Um, Chitty TV once a week, but they're also on YouTube. And so Jeff, uh, our organization is the Vedic Academy of Sciences and Arts. So that's Vasa at jeffreyarmstrong.com. And through that, they can get in touch with all of the things that we're doing. That's you know, awesome. I usually begin with this, but in our context, it's more appropriate at the end. But those of us who are carriers of the Vedic knowledge of India, because India has, of course, not been honored in the way she should be. But we always begin this way. Om Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu. Guru Devo Maheshwaraha, Guru Sakshad Parabrahma, Tasmai Shri Gurve Namaha. We honor the carriers of this great Vidya, wisdom, who carried it forward in history, bravely and across circumstances like the ones we're experiencing, and passed it forward, kept it clear, kept it perfectly pristine, learned to sing it, learned to chant it, passed it on to us. So I'll end with just one story. And a brief one. When I entered the ashram, a couple of months after, my guru, who was in his uh, 80s by then, uh, from India, no money, came here with no money just to teach this knowledge, just to share it with all of us, not sent here by anyone. He begged a steamship ticket one way, got here, stayed till he left his body. So he was about to introduce a new chant to us. And I won't sing it now, it would take too long. But he was sitting up on his chair and we all had the words to this song. And the song is about the love that we share with the source of our existence. How that love is the most beautiful love. And as he began to sing, tears squirted out from his eyes, three feet, into the audience where I was sitting on the floor right in front of him, onto my face. My face was washed with the tears of love, of joy, of ecstasy, of my guru, who brought a message that refuses to force itself or harm others in the name of sharing it. No conversion, no coercion, 
just friendly conversation, just like Paul and I are doing right now. This is the only way to say this. It's the only way to share it. And it's the only way to live it. There is no other only way except that we must embody the love and beauty that we have always sought. Yes. Why not, my friends, to give up the quest for that beauty? Believe in yourself. Believe that that is possible. And believe that through your sincere love and longing and hunger, it all will eventually be so. Don't feel alone. Don't feel empty. Don't despair. And don't give up. Yeah. Hey, I got to say, namaste, buddy. That was uh, such a beautiful experience. I I think this is so important in the world right now. And, um, you know, I think that the duality in the, the battle is necessary because without it, we get complacent and we don't reach into our spiritual core. And so I think that what we're going through is is part of our own spiritual awakening and it's not something we're going to make go away but it's something that we can transform into artwork and and to dance and to song and to celebration of life and i think if people realized how beautiful life is um they would be ready to celebrate it and, and that's i think the only way out of this thing is to protect what is sacred well, Paul, you're so wonderful. I love you dearly. You just led me to something I wasn't going to do, but I'm going to do. <laughs> I don't want to make you late. <laughs> no, I'm okay. So you said song indeed, and I'm going to end with a song, the lyrics to which I wrote, and a friend of mine named Michael Cassidy wrote the music. And this song is from a famous story about a caterpillar who eventually transformed. Yay. The word cater and pillage is the word caterpillar. Oh, yes. Those two words make up the word caterpillar. This is called a change of heart. Ah, caterpillar changed his mind and woke to find himself refined. His old self had to die for him to be a butterfly. He tired of walking on the ground. And so around himself he wound a screen of silken strands, a veil untouched by human hands. Then something subtle changed within, reflected by his changing skin. He had a change of heart and wished to play another part. If like that worm, my soul could fly, a rainbow-colored a butterfly upon the winds of time. Then I, with wings of gold, would climb beyond this burning dark abyss up to that land of love and bliss where grows a flower sweet. I'll fly to Krishna's lotus feet. And there I'll live eternally, my soul at last from matter free. A song will fill the sky, the love song of a butterfly. <laughs> I love it, man. It's so amazing you said that because I was just watching 
Bruce Lipton's series on Gaia, which is really about, you know, how to deal with what's going on in the world and how to transform. And his key theme is the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's such an important process, you know? Oh, my gosh. Well, then everyone needs to know, Paul, there's an album called A Change of Heart. The album's under the name of Michael Cassidy, who wrote all the music and and some of the words, and a dear friend of mine. We made the rock opera together. So A Change of Heart, Michael Cassidy. And that song is the lead song on that album, which in the background has the UCLA Orchestra of the Graduate School of the Music Department. And that album has sold 30 million records throughout the world and been distributed all throughout the world and brought thousands and thousands of people into the yogic understanding. And that was the lead song that I wrote the words to and Michael Cassidy wrote the music and turned into a beautiful album. Now, one last thing as we go, about a year ago, I found out that Sigmund Freud, one of my teachers from when I got my PhD in psychology, invented a word called psychoanalysis. Yeah. Nobody knows what it really means. <laughs> well, yeah. That's pretty Analysis funny. It's from the word anal. <laughs> Very Sigmund Freud. Because it means, not by his judgment, but in general, because it means what to keep and what to throw away. Right. Okay. And psycho or suke, suke is the Greek goddess of butterflies. Oh. And there's a wow. flower bush with butterflies flitting about it on the flowers in a beautiful day in the summer. That is the goddess Suke, according to the Greeks. So Sigmund Freud defined psychoanalysis as freeing the butterfly. Wow. And I think with that, we've had a wonderful time together. And thank you dearly for bringing me onto your show and for being who you are. Uh, you too. And and before we go, how do you spell Cassidy of uh, Michael Cassidy? C-A-S-S-I-D-Y. Okay, good. I had it right. I just want to make sure because if it's spelt differently, they might not find it. What a what a what a killer, killer journey. I mean, this was just beautiful. And thank you so much, Jeffrey. I, I really uh totally am so grateful for all the work you've done and just who you are. And I, I'm I've got lots more I want to talk to you about. So I'll send you some emails. Let's let's see if we can do some more of this together. And yeah, what's the, is it the same one on the right that you have on the left? It's the hardbound. Okay. Yeah. Great book, everybody. Really worth reading. Beautifully, beautifully done. Beautifully laid out. Great art. I love the way you laid it out, Jeffrey, because it's very easy to read. This is my partner, Sandy Graham. I have to say that the feminine divine and I have lived together for 24 years, dedicated only to this knowledge and teaching. And she is the visual, and I am the auditory. That's she perfect. She is the CEO and the one with the eye for beauty. So the beauty of this lovely book is entirely the outcome of my lovely partner. Yay. Sandra. Yeah. Well, I'm with you there. I, I couldn't do anything without the women in my life. So they are the queens of the of the enterprise. So thank you so much. And uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you guys got as much out of this as I did track down uh, 
Jeffrey Armstrong, look into the Vedic Academy of Arts and Sciences, Vasa. If you liked Sanskrit and the experiences we had, I'm sure you can learn a lot more there. And uh, if you love this podcast and feel it's as important as I do, please share it with everybody you can. And let's all work together to come back to our center and, and get back to sacred rituals and see this opportunity in the world as the, the caterpillar coming out of its chrysalis to become the butterfly, because we, we have this opportunity now to grow wings or, well, I don't think I need you to say what, I, what will happen to the butterfly if it doesn't grow ring, wings because it's running out of food in, in the cocoon there. So It'll uh, probably be better, do better than the infants, but we yeah. don't have that. Yeah, so lots of love, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. Thank you to all my sponsors. Thank you to all of you for anything you buy from the sponsors. A small commission comes back to me to support the podcast. And as you know, all my sponsors are exactly the kind of people that we are that do what they do to support the planet with sustainable practices and very healthy, very clean products. So my love to all of you, Jeffrey, once again, namaste from my heart to yours. And uh, let's meet again as soon as we can. I can't wait. Bye, everybody. Are you possessed? Hello, I'd like to offer you an opportunity to invest in a full audio download program that is very, very comprehensive on the issues of entity possession by myself, Paul Check, holistic health practitioner, founder of the Check Institute and PPS Success Master Program, as well as my partner in this program, Kedrich Olson, a specialist in paranormal protection work, a Norse mystic, and spiritual guidance coach. His expertise has been showcased on Gaia TV, Coast to Coast Radio, and popular podcasts. This amazing, detailed program may be the most comprehensive of its kind in the world today. Entity possession is a field I've studied quite extensively because of how often I've found these issues directly or indirectly linked to patients and clients' physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges. With the combined knowledge Kedrich and I share in this full-length program, you are not only getting one of the most comprehensive educations available worldwide on the topic, but we share a lot of highly practical information anyone can use to prevent or heal from entity possession. For an investment of only $39.95, you get the full download program, which includes nine and a half hours of information that includes the following sections or titles. What are entities? Internally generated entities, entities of a personal nature, ghosts, thought form entities, fairies, nature spirits, angels, spirit guides, entities from other planes of existence, dragons and my experience working with dragons, consciousness and quantum physics, psychotic episodes, spiritual emergency or spiritual emergence, researching, exploring, and validating psychic phenomenon, servitors, tulpas, poltergeists, and near-death experiences, how people get possessions, multiple personality disorder, dissociative disorders, and information about the Black Madonna, the types of disassociative disorders including fatigue states, depersonalization disorder, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, and the section to determine the difference between entity possession or complexes as defined by Carl Jung, other common means of acquiring entity possession, the importance of doing healing work on yourself to prevent entity possessions, psychedelics, ley lines, extended isolation, the nocebo effect, all as sources of entity possession, mediumship, electromagnetic stress, acts of evil, evil or negative spells, 
common indicators anyone can use to identify if they have an entity possession. Sleepwalking, a healing ceremony story of entity possession and tips you can use, plus more on spiritual emergence and the importance of consistent spiritual work. Key tips for preventing entity possession. Seance, well-being in the four doctors and how to prevent entity possessions. The importance of having a dream, goals, and objectives in your life. Core values, six foundation principles, and learning to discern one's own thoughts and feelings from external sources. Setting boundaries, controlling one's environment. Biogeometry, love and higher frequency vibrations that can protect anyone from entity possession. A simple, powerful technique for having your soul clear you of negative entities, disembodied souls, or spirits that can have negative effects at every level of your body-mind. What to do if someone is confident that they do indeed have an entity? What are some self-help solutions to clearing and preventing their return and suggestions for finding professional help? And we finish with some closing comments. To invest in your full Are You Possessed audio download program and start learning and exploring this fascinating and very real topic now, go to thecheckshop.com forward slash product forward slash r dash u dash possessed forward slash. Once again, that's the C-H-E-K shop.com forward slash product forward slash r dash u dash possessed forward slash. I hope you enjoy this fascinating program. It's very deep. Kedrich brings a wealth of knowledge and experience into the program. And as you are about to learn, these are very real issues. And you might be surprised to find that they're issues in your own life, either in your own body mind or in your family or in your circle of friends, particularly if you go to ceremonies where psychedelics are being used in groups. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Jeffrey Armstrong. You can find Jeffrey online at jeffreyarmstrong.com and gitacomesalive.com. You can also find his book, The Bhagavad Gita Comes Alive, at Amazon and all good bookstores. Follow him on Twitter at Jeffrey Vassa, that's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-V-A-S-A, and on Facebook at Kavindra Rishi, that's K-A-V-I-N-D-R-A-R-I-S-H-I. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Czech videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Remember, you can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at czechinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Podcast.